Andrew uh, Wilson. I'm a professor of the archaeology of the Roman Empire in the Faculty of Classics. How well could pre-industrial economies do? The nature, scale, structure and performance of ancient economies is currently one of the most uh, hotly debated areas of ancient history. And the Oxford Roman Economy Project, um, funded first by a five-year AHRC grant and then until 2012 by private um, benefaction from uh, Baron Lorne Thiessen, combines archaeological and ancient uh, documentary sources to try to quantify elements of the Roman economy, especially in the period 100 BC to about AD 350, an era which produced some of the greatest quantity of monuments and works of art still visible today. The project has held a number of annual conferences on urbanization, on agriculture, trade, mining and coinage, and a range of other workshops and colloquia. Um, it has a website with working papers and subject uh, bi bibliographies, and importantly, a whole series of uh, databases on ancient shipwrecks, on ancient mining sites, on ancient large-scale um, agricultural production facilities, on tax returns from Egypt, and so on. And a lot of the um, data in these is being used by a group of graduate students who are also contributing to, to enhancing that resource. Uh, we've had five defills completed, uh, six in progress, and two MFILs in progress who are all in some way associated with the project. Key questions include the role of the state, the economic portfolios of the elite, um, and the nature, extent, and limits of economic um, growth. Now, Roman economic growth is shown, um, first and foremost, just by more stuff at sites. The Roman period levels on any site you excavate will tend to have more pottery, more metalwork, more glassware, um, and other goods than do earlier and later periods. Um, and even in low-status houses, you see more elaborate wall painting and, and uh, decoration than um, in previous periods. And this is paralleled on rural sites, too. Even Roman cave dwellers in Gloucestershire uh, were sometimes using imported uh, pottery from France. Um, Roman shepherds in southern Gaul were using uh, cooking wares imported from North Africa. These are all indications of greater consumption expenditure, and they imply rising standards of living. And from this and other indicators, it seems that the Roman economy was experiencing some form of per capita growth, apparently in parallel with, aggre with aggregate growth as the population increased. Between the end of the Civil Wars in 31 BC and the uh, middle of the second century, when um, a plague, the Antonine Plague, probably smallpox, hit in the 160s. And what I want to try to do briefly uh, today is to explain how, for a century and a half, the Roman economy was able to defy the Malthusian expectation that would predict that um, in pre-industrial societies lacking fossil fuels, as population grows, per capita income should decline um, as marginal returns decrease and vice versa. And the answers seem to lie in a combination of technological change, institutional change as the Mediterranean became a Roman lake under single political control, and a process of Smithian growth, the phenomenon identified by Adam Smith, um, uh, where the interplay of urbanization, increased long-distance trade, and division of labor creates economies of scale and more efficient per capita ways of doing things. Arguably, after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century AD, Roman levels of urbanization, trade, and prosperity on several indices weren't again matched until variously the late medieval or early modern periods. Now this map shows the state of urbanization of urban centers um, in the area later covered by the Roman 
empire around 100 BC. It's the product of one of RD Phil students, uh, Jack Hansen, um, whose uh, attempt to map the entire set of Roman cities is probably the first comprehensive one since Agrippa's map that may be the Roman original behind Hereford's Mappa Mundi. Jack's effort is, I think, rather more comprehensive. But in 100 BC, you've got just over 1,000 cities, mainly concentrated around the Mediterranean, a lot of the legacy urbanism, if you like, of ancient Greece and the Greek world of Asia Minor. Roman impact is massive. Um, uh, it not quite doubles that figure. Um, and this represents both an increase in population, because at the same time, rural settlement, we know, is increasing. So it isn't just rural to urban migration with a stable overall population. Importantly, this seems to show an increase in surplus. There are more city dwellers being supported off primary agriculture. Um, and so there's greater surplus, probably greater per capita surplus. In the aggregate, these cities create a vast distributed market, and the fact that so many are coastal meant that many could be, and indeed were, served by maritime imports. Long-distance trade increased, and that's reflected by an increase in the size of the larger ships. It's only between 100 BC and AD 650 that we find wrecks of ships over 150 tonnes, and of, only, of uh, wrecks over 200 tonnes only until AD 300. Uh, the largest ships of the Roman period weren't equaled in size again until the late Middle Ages. That widely traded surplus um, resulted in part from organised and large-scale agricultural techniques focused in the western provinces, particularly on the villa system. Now, the villa wasn't just a fancy house. It was an estate centre organising and processing the crops from the estate for market sale. Much of this surplus, especially in province like uh, North Africa, was exported overseas to Rome, but also to many of the other urban markets of the Mediterranean. The vast size of that connected market justified very large-scale production. In the first to third centuries, and especially in the second century AD, we can see particularly in North Africa, southern France and parts of Spain, um, uh, sites with purpose-built press rooms containing multiple presses like this for uh, processing olives into olive oil, grapes into wine. So a large one from Al Algeria with six presses. You can see these orthostats for the uprights in a range here. One at Sanam Samana in Libya, recorded in the late 19th century, had a whole battery of 17 presses. Um, and there's a wine treading site uh, from Algeria, Kerbegoub, where you have pairs of um, wine treading floors and press floors uh, signaled by the presence of counterweight blocks here. These are um, enormous investments in agricultural processing. This kind of investment in cash crop oriented villa agriculture isn't really paralleled again until um, 18th century plantation agriculture uh, on Jamaica and St. Kitts, another instance of colonisation being um, uh, connected with large-scale exploitation. But this kind of phenomenon isn't happening just in the agricultural sphere. Um, we see also manufactories for pottery production and large-scale urban um, bakeries showing rational layouts with a spatial division of labour uh, between different tasks in pottery production, grain milling, and indeed in the creation of small marble statuettes and bowls, the layout of workshops and uh, dumps of production uh, debris associated with different stages of manufacture shows a considerable division of labour and very rudimentary early production lines. And this is confirmed by iconography um, in, for example, the large-scale uh, bakeries of the city of Rome. Um, you have the milling of grain into flour, uh, the kneading of dough, rolling it out, and, and uh, baking it in the oven, all performed by different groups. 
Um, within the Hia Bakery, and that's confirmed by the archaeological layout, this is a large bakery from Ostia, the port of Rome, a milling hall with nine animal-driven mills here, and from there the flour would move into the adjacent room where it was kneaded into dough in these five animal-driven uh, dough, dough mixing machines, like a sort of um, early uh, Kenwood mixer. Um, now, these simple production lines didn't involve the fitting together of interchangeable parts like Henry Ford's, but rather the successive shaping or transformation of a single object. Um, nevertheless, the rational organisation of such large-scale production units created a very early form of manufacturing and enabled mass production at low unit costs. And we even see the occasional simple true factory with mechanisation, um, such as this 2nd century AD milling complex at Barbagal near Arles in southern France, with 16 water mills driven by two uh, branches of an, of an aqueduct cascading down this limestone ridge. Um, a total of 16 water mills in all. So the peace dividend following the end of the Civil Wars kick-started a process of Smithian growth um, with increased urbanisation, growth in markets, stimulating long-distance trade and facilitating greater division of labour. Elite investment in large-scale production was sometimes systematic and organised, and the state was involved in creating uh, physical transport infrastructure and the institutional framework for trade, and also as a large-scale economic actor. Um, this was made possible by a strong state, but a state which spent perhaps a larger proportion of its revenue on public works and infrastructure than did many nation-states of the early 19th century. It's been calculated that uh, the customs revenues on just the Roman trade with India alone might have uh, accounted for about a third of the state's expenditure on the army. So the period from the 1st century BC till the middle of the 2nd century AD seems to have been exceptionally prosperous, but following the Antonine Plague of the mid-2nd century and the barbarian invasions of the 3rd century, there's severe retrenchment. But at the same time, recent tree ring research, this is an article published in Science earlier this year, suggests that in Northern Europe, at least for much of the Roman period, the climate was unusually favourable. Good rainfall, high temperatures. Um, but there's a sudden and significant dip in temperature in the mid-2nd century. That's about here, I think. Um, and... Um, drops in both temperature and rainfall in the later 3rd century. The correlation with economic performance and climate change is suggestive and it prompts new questions about the relationship between climate and economic success in the past, but also with obvious relevance to today's world too. Thank you. <laughs>